Our Father in heaven, there will be silence before you and praise in Zion, O God, and to you the vow will be performed, O you who hear prayer. It is to you that all men come. Iniquities prevail against me, and as for our transgressions, you forgive them. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of their peoples. They who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of your signs. You make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. You visit the earth and cause it to overflow. You greatly enrich it. The stream of God is full of water. You prepare their grain, for thus you prepare the earth. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers. You bless its growth. You have crowned the year with your bounty, and your paths drip with fatness. The pastures of the wilderness drip, and the hills gird themselves with rejoicing. The meadows are clothed with flocks, and the valleys are covered with grain. They shout for joy. Yes, even they sing. Shout joyfully to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name. And our Father, we do that now. Even as we read from Psalm 65 and a portion of Psalm 66, we thank you that you are the great creator. We thank you that you spoke the worlds into existence. You are the one who has established your throne in the heavens and your sovereignty, your control rules over all. We can't live without rain and you are the one who sends the rain. We cannot live if this earth was not in perfect balance. Without that, Lord, if our atmosphere was tilted one way or the other or this way or that, we'd be finished, but we're not finished because you sustain us. You uphold all things by the word of your power. And Father, on a day when so many are indoctrinating children and worshiping things that, quite frankly, is nothing less than just uh, idolatry, we want to honor your name. We want to thank you for everything that we have that comes from your hand. 
Great is your faithfulness, O God our Father. What a great God you are. Your provision, you sustain us, you take care of us, you provide for us. You know when our hearts are breaking, you know when we are fearful. You know the weight and the burdens that we carry. You know the concerns that are in this room. You know the discouragement and every man who has it in his heart and to what degree he is carrying that discouragement. You, you know about it all. You're, you're God. You're God. And you are our Father. And you are all sufficient. So today we want to honor you. In the middle of all this foolishness, we want to say that you are God. And we are grateful that we are your children. We are thankful for Jesus and that he came to this earth, the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he came and he laid aside his privileges and He became the God-man and he lived that sinless life after being born of that virgin and went to that cross and took the sins of the whole world upon him. That means he took our sins. Now that is something to celebrate. Because of that resurrection that occurred three days later, we have been set free as we trust in Christ alone. We're living in strange times. We're living in foolish times. It seems like the whole world has lost its mind. How grateful we are tonight to open your book of truth and hear truth and receive from you wisdom which translates into common sense. That's what we need to keep going. Give each man tonight precisely what each guy needs in the dose in which he needs it. We would ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Timothy chapter 2. We have been weeks weeks in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, we have four more sessions, uh, which is interesting because in those four sessions, we've got to cover chapter 2, we've got to cover chapter 3, and um, we've got to cover that last chapter. So we've got some work to do. Uh, we have been, um, you know really what we've been doing? We've been in this opening chapter, it's sort of like we've been uh, just running... Um, We've had a ground game, and we've just been running through the tackles. You know, a yard here, a yard here, a verse there, a couple of verses there. So it's taken us a while to get to chapter one. Now that we're at two, and we've got four weeks left, we're kind of watching the clock. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to the West Coast offense, and we're going to start passing, and we're going to start opening this sucker up. So we're going to cover some ground tonight. And this is a great chapter in the second chapter of Second Timothy. Um, this, this chapter is full of metaphors. And, and Paul pulls from different uh, examples of men in life and takes from them.
them as to how we ought to be living our lives and in uh, the difficult times in which we're in. I'll remind you that 2 Timothy, of all of Paul's letters, was his last letter. It's the last thing he ever wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's getting ready to die. He knows it. He says in, in chapter 4 that my departure is imminent. He's passing the baton on to young Timothy, uh, his, his protege. And here's the thing. Uh, the reason that Paul is in prison, and he is in prison, you know, you can go, you can still go to Rome, you can visit Rome, you know, take one of those tours on the way to Israel, or go to Rome, just go to Rome, or, you know, go over to that, uh, one of those fountains and get a gelato, and then go over to Mamertine Prison, where Paul was hanging out, and it's still there today, and you can get your gelato and go see the dungeon. And when Paul was there, he wasn't uh, licking a gelato. He was getting ready to die. Uh, it was not a good time to be a Christian. Uh, I need to remind you of this. Uh, the world was in bad shape, and Christianity was not real popular. There was, a, um, there was a guy running the whole Roman Empire by the name of Nero. This guy was absolutely insane. And if you know a little bit of Roman history, you know that some things happened, and he was very unpopular, and he had to do some things to get the heat off of him uh, the great fire that hit Rome, he deflected and he said the Christians did it. Some scholars believe it was right after that that Paul was put into prison in Rome. And it was a real bad time to be a Christian back then. Because this is one of the great persecutions, one of the worst persecutions in church history. One of the things that Nero would do is that that great... Um, road going into Rome at night as the sun was setting, they would take Christians and they would uh, put them up on, on standards. They would put them up on post. Sometimes they'd nail them. Sometimes they'd strap them. Before they'd put them up, they'd dip them in pitch. And as it got dark, the soldiers would come by with torches and light them and your entrance into the city would be lit by the burning bodies and screams of Christians. It's not a good time to be a Christian. Not a lot of people were joining First Baptist of Rome or First uh, Methodist or whatever, the, whatever it was. It wasn't a time to join church just to make some business contacts. If you were a Christian, you meant it. There was no screwing around with being a cultural Christian it, 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 it wasn't the thing to do, and then you'd have lunch at the country club afterwards. It was put up or shut up. It was get in the ark or get out. Either follow Christ or don't. It's amazing what persecution does to the church, isn't it? Persecution always purifies the church. And persecution always empowers the church. But persecution is the last thing that any of us ever want to encounter, is it not? And we have lived in a country that has been a free country. We have lived in a country where there has been freedom of speech. I say there has been. There's been freedom of speech and there's been freedom of religion, but those days are coming to an end rapidly, are they not?
and we're on the wrong team. Have you noticed this? If you haven't, you better get your radar up. Um, we're not real popular, those of us who bear the name of Christ. Uh, more and more and more, we're the bad guys. Yet it was our forefathers who believed the faith that we believed that established this nation, not all of them, but there's no question that the most significant book in the minds of the founding fathers was the Bible. Was the Bible followed perfectly? No. No, it wasn't. There was slavery. And unfortunately, those who named the name of Christ who were slave owners would keep slaves from reading. And in many cases, and then they would read to them that slavery was in the Bible, but they didn't really tell them about slavery in the Bible and how different it was from what they were doing. Some of them, no doubt, were more gracious to slaves. Others weren't. You know, there was all kinds of abuses. I'm not saying we were perfect, but I'm saying if you look at the laws in the early days of this nation, the laws didn't come from the Koran, did they? Because if they had it, there wouldn't have been freedom of religion. Would they? Would there? You know that, and I know it. Can I say this stuff? Is it still legal? So far. So far probably got another three or four days. We're okay. Huh? You see it coming, don't you? It's all shifting. It's all changing. We're going the wrong way, guys, aren't we? We're going the way of the fool. I'm reminded of Ecclesiastes Chapter 10, verse 2, kind of an interesting verse, talks about the foolish way. Ecclesiastes 10.2 says, a wise man's heart directs him towards the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him towards the left. That's in the Bible. That's all I'm going to do is just read it. I'll let you take it from there. But it's in the Word of God. We want to follow the right way. We want to follow God's way. God's way is the right way. The Bible is the right way. Not, not a particular philosophy. It's God's Word that is the right way. Is it not? Okay. I find it interesting that right out of the blocks in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul, who's in prison right out of the block, says to young Timothy, be strong. Now, why does he tell him to be strong? Because he's living in an age where he has to be strong. It's not a convenient time. It's not an easy time. It's not a time where, when Christians are winning popularity contests. It is a time of persecution. Nobody likes persecution. Nobody likes to have uh, their, their, their lives threatened. No one likes to be ridiculed. No one likes to lose their home or be pulled in the court or any of this stuff simply because of what they believe. We, we've had a free ride in this nation for a long time, have we not? Yes, we have. An unbelievable ride. But it's, it's coming to an end. You can sense it. You can feel it. It's just reality. So then, so then what do we need to do? Well, we need to be strong. Do we cut and run? 
Do we charter a plane to New Zealand? Couldn't afford it anyway. How are you going to live when you get out there? No, we stay the course. This is where God's planted us. What do we do? We follow Christ. I, I think this, this book of seven, Second Timothy has tremendous application to where we are today. Because if there's anything that Christian men who are leading their families need to hear, it's the words, be strong. Be strong. This is not a time to be, uh, uh, this is not a time to be a weak Christian. If you're a weak Christian, you know what? You're out the door. John said they went out from us because they were not of us. This is a time when you find out where you're made of, what you're made of. This is a time when you find out if your faith is real. This is a time when you, when you find out if you really believe the stuff you have said that you believe. It's not a time for wusses, is it? It's not a time for wimps. It's, it's the time we're going to find out uh, who God's men really are as they turn up the heat. And, it's, and, and they're turning it up quickly. Once again, have you noticed this? Do you sense it? Do you see it? It's everywhere. Once again, I appreciate the guy who asked me a few weeks ago, can't you be more positive? No. No, I'm positive in my faith, aren't you? I'm positive in my God. I'm not afraid. I'm not, I'm not losing sleep at night. His mercies are new every morning. God's working his plan. You know what I get concerned about is when I get letters from guys who said, you know, this is happening, this is happening, and, you know, we got to do this, and we got to do this, and, you know, we got to get together and do all that. We've done all that stuff. And I'm not saying you don't, you, you don't do what you can do, but, but guys, we got to understand something. God is working his plan. God's at work here. God oversees nations and epics and times. God is at work. You know, many of us are very interested in prophecy. Well, if you're interested in prophecy, this is part of prophecy. We're just watching it unfold before our eyes. We may not like what we're seeing, but it's part of God's plan. And he, you can't forget that God is absolutely sovereign over all of this stuff. All of it. That's your hope. That's your certainty. That's your security. If you've got a big God, you're fine. We did a study in the fall on giants. All the giants in life that we fight. There's a, who's the ultimate giant? God. God trumps every giant. God looks at the nations and he laughs. He laughs. God raises up rulers. God raises up rulers. God sets them down. He blows on them and they wither. They're nothing. In fact, Isaiah 40 says they're void and meaningless. Boy, those are two good words. When it comes to nations and when it comes to leaders. Oh, this guy, this guy. You know what God says? Void. Meaningless. Insignificant. Don't you love the word of God? Don't you? It's the only way people go. I mean, how, how, how do people make it? How do people live? Well, they don't. They live in denial. You know, they shoot up. They snort up. I mean, you got to do something. You see? To withstand all this stuff. Here's Paul in prison. 
Is he down? Is he seeing a counselor every week, three times a week? Is he going to therapy? No. What's he? The guy who's in prison, the guy who's getting ready to die, he's the guy that's dispensing encouragement to everybody. Timothy, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be worried. You don't have to be shook up. We know from other portions of Scripture, we know a little bit about Timothy. Timothy was his personality. You know about Timothy. Was he a hard-charging guy, real aggressive, confrontive guy? No. Timothy was more of a laid-back guy. You get the sense Timothy didn't like conflict. Well, I mean, who likes conflict? Most guys don't. Um, everybody has a temperament. Everybody has a personality. And you come out of the womb bent, don't you? Amazing how each of your, our kids come out of the womb and they're bent. Chuck years ago had a book, um, You and Your Child. Great book on kids. And in that book, he took that verse in Proverbs, raised up a child in the way that he should go. Train up a child in the way that he should go. When he's old, he shall not depart from it. And in that book, he, he showed how the Hebrew idea there really is train up a child in the way that he is bent. That's the idea. Every child comes out of the womb bent. Your firstborn is bent differently than your secondborn, right? They probably couldn't be more different. And your thirdborn is done. Your fourth, you know, depending on how many you have. They're all different. They come out bent. They have... They have aptitudes they have interests they have uh, temperaments some kids are fearful some kids are fearless right any of you have a fearless kid he wound up a linebacker linebackers are fearless aren't they linebackers are crazy we have homes for linebackers when they get old they have no fear. Some of you guys know my brother Jeff. Jeff was a kind of kid. He was the third in our family of three boys. Jeff was, Jeff was nuts. He's still nuts. He's fearless. He's fearless. Um, you look deep into his eyes, you see the word tilt. <laughs> and that's why Jeff lives in chronic pain. That's why Jeff had his knee drained 65 times at UCLA. Before they said, that's it, you're done. So then he played rugby for 14 years. Now that's just insane. Uh, but some guys have no fear. Other guys are a little more fearful. Just temperament, personality, you know, they're, okay. Well, that was Timothy. Timothy was just a little more reticent, and he sees all this persecution. My gosh, Paul's in prison and you know and then what about me well this could happen to me and you know you can your mind can just take off and you can get so worried you can become sick with worry paul says timothy you see that in two one timothy what what was it be strong be strong be strong well well how, how do you how do you be strong well, you've you got to have your wits about you and you've got to have your feet firmly planted in the Word of God because it's in the Word of God that you find out about the grace of God. Note, if you would, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. When things get tough, when things get hard, when Christianity is unpopular, you've got to be strong in the grace. I find that interesting because, you see, because when things get tough and things get difficult, 
Sometimes we hear of people that are facing this or facing this in another country, and we think to ourselves, man, I could never face that. I could never endure that. Uh, You know what? You actually could. And you know why you could? I'll tell you why. Because if indeed you found yourself in that position, the grace of God would be sufficient for you in that situation. Would it not? Some of you guys have been through cancer. And before you got cancer, you had times in your life where you'd meet someone who had cancer and you would think to yourself, man, I don't know how I'd ever face that. But you know what? When cancer came, by the grace of God, you faced it. There there are things that we look out and we see other people and they're enduring this and dealing, man, I couldn't deal with that. And then we find ourselves sometimes dealing with it. And we're being sustained. How? By the grace of God. God knows what we need when we need it. So that's why we don't have to fear about this stuff. His grace is sufficient. That's how you're strong. You know, it's not that you prop yourself up and listen to all these motivational speakers, you know, know, get psyched up for the game. No, you're strong in the Lord. He'll give me what I need. He'll give me what I need, and he will. Now, there are four metaphors in this passage. I'm a little worked up tonight. I, I, I'll be honest with you, I am, because I just think this, thing, this, this is very relevant. I'm just acutely aware of that. Four metaphors that Paul is going to hit. Uh, the first one we derive from the text. He doesn't explicitly state it. But the first metaphor that he uses in verses 1 and 2, and the first thing he says to Timothy is that, Timothy, you need to be a steward steward verses one and two you therefore my son be strong in the grace that is in christ jesus the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also what is a steward a steward is someone who has been entrusted with something if you have someone handle your financial affairs They are a steward. You have entrusted them. They have been given a trust. The trust, contextually, and we know this from the last several weeks, that Timothy has been given, is the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news of Christ. The good news of Christ is that as wretched as we are and as screwed up as we are, and we are all screwed up, are we not? Yes, we are. The great news of the gospel is that that all of my sin, all of my sin was taken by Christ when he was on the cross. That's the great news of the gospel. A number of years ago, I, I, I was at doing a conference, and a guy came up to me and, and kind of pulled me to the side, and the guy was just broken. And um, I'd never had this one happen before, but the, the, guy, the guy was just, he was just broken. He was, he, was bro- he was a broken man. And, and he said, Steve, I, I, I am a wretched individual, and I have lived a wretched life. I have been in jail for child molestation. I, 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 am, I hate myself. Can Christ forgive my sin? 
No, you know what? I mean, honestly, that's pretty wretched. Take a little three-year-old kid and abuse him. Right? That's pretty wretched. He said, I've lived a wretched life. He, wish, he, he said, I wish that I had never been born. I wish I had never been born into my family. I wish my father had never done to me the things that he did. I wish my father had never abused me sexually. I wish my uncle, he wasn't, and he said, I'm not excusing, I just wish I had never been born. You know, Solomon said something like that in Ecclesiastes, better than miscarriage. Better than miscarriage. This guy was, this guy was broken. He was broken. And he said, I've heard, I've heard this stuff all my life. And you see, we hear that, and you know what? That's, that's horrible stuff. And you know what? Somebody, you know what? Somebody needs to pay. Justice needs to be done. You know, you know what's really amazing to me, scripturally? Do you know why you are not a child molester? It's because of the grace of God. Because every one of us in this room have the potential. Every one of us has the potential for that. Every one of us has the potential to be a Charles Manson. Every one of us has the potential to be a Stalin or a Hitler or whoever you... The heart, Jeremiah says, is desperately sick and wicked. It doesn't say some guy's heart. It says all of our hearts. It's the grace of God that we have not gone further in the sin than we have gone. And when we sin, and when sin happens, and when you see particular sins, you think, well, somebody needs to pay. And, of course, we, we have, you know, different uh, laws for different sins and all that. You know, there's a difference, obviously, between molesting a three-year-old child and lying to your wife. But it's still wrong, and it's still sin. All of the sin of the world, uh, catch this, all of the sin of the world... And the wrath and the judgment of that sin, your sin and my sin, the judgment that was due me for my sin, the judgment that was due you for your sin, was placed on Christ. He was the sin bearer. He died in my place. And the wrath of God, the anger of God. You guys ever read something in the paper that somebody does and you, get, you, just, get, you just get angry? You wish you could go over there and just beat the crud out of that sucker? I mean, come on, huh? It's just us guys, right? Your wife's not here, so you can admit this. <laughs> it might upset her, but you know what? You read something, you go, that's unreal. Somebody needs to... You want to see justice, don't you? Absolutely. And then we get upset because we don't see justice. The anger, the wrath of God in his holiness... And in his justice, that is due for all the sin that's ever been committed. It was all poured on Christ. And Christ took it. So I could say to this guy, a broken and contrite spirit he does not despise. There's forgiveness in Christ. This guy was so, this guy was so, uh, this guy was so self-loathing, he, he was considering suicide. Is there any good news for someone like that? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. There's the gospel of Christ. There's the gospel of Christ. 
I know a lot of guys who have a ministry of helping guys that are in sexual addictions. I mean, they're, 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 they're absolutely locked up in chains, and they're Christians. How do these guys have a ministry? Well, they used to be locked up in sexual addictions for years and years and years. They thought they'd never get out of it. They couldn't go three hours without getting into that stuff. But they've been set free, and now they're ministering to other guys, and those other guys are getting set free. See, that's verse 2. He's a steward of the gospel. Look at this. The things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy, look at You entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The gospel. Look at Timothy. You be strong in the Lord. But Timothy, is persecution. Hey, what happens if you get knocked out in three years? You don't know how long you've got. So what do you do? You entrust it. You take the gospel. You take the good news. Entrust it to faithful men so that they may entrust it to faithful men. That's our job. This is bottom line Christianity. This is your job and my job, and you never retire from this job. I don't care how old you are. Your job is to entrust the truth of Christ into somebody else. If you're a father with kids, there you go. If you're a grandpa, there you go. You see? That's our job. My mom's been with us a couple weeks. Some of you guys know my dad passed away in late January. It's been great to have my mom. We were having dinner last night, just having some great laughs, thinking about my dad. And then a few tears, because we miss him. I'm grateful for the things that my dad entrusted to me. And I'm very grateful that my grandpa entrusted those to my dad. And you see, then it's been my responsibility to entrust those to my kids. And then on down the line. That's how it works. It's called stewardship. That's what it's called. We're stewards. We're stewards. We're stewards. Sometimes we struggle with meaninglessness in our lives. Maybe, uh, maybe you're retired and you're looking... You know, you can, only, you can only hit so many golf balls, right? And lose them. You can only have so much leisure. You got to do something that's significant. So what do you do? Go and trust this to somebody. Go take your gifts and skills and use them for the glory of God. Colossians says, whatever you do, do your work heartily, not as unto men, but as unto Christ. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You a CPA? Find some elderly people that are not doing real well and need some help, but go do their taxes for them. You know what? You're giving them a cup of water in Jesus' name. You go with your hands, go down to Guatemala and help somebody build a house or a church or something. It's great. You see, it's a stewardship. Now, I've got to watch my time. I told myself tonight I'd watch my time. Um, I, I, I've always loved Martin Lloyd-Jones. I refer to him all the time. Pastored Westminster Chapel in uh, London. He died in, um, was it 1980, I believe. Uh, he preached through Ephesians. It took him 12 years. I bring that up uh, for those of you who think I'm going slow, <laughs> he preached on Romans for 15 years and didn't finish it. 
um, I guess what I'm saying to myself is I need to move along here if I'm going to get through at least a portion of chapter two. First metaphor, you're a steward. Second metaphor, you're a soldier. See verse three? Paul says, Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Warren Wearsby has an illustration of a guy in the Civil War who had been a watchmaker before he joined in the Confederate cause. And, you know, different uh, men uh, that he was serving with, they had their, you know, their, their, their little gold pocket watches, you know, with them and had them in their pocket or whatever. And the different watches would not work. And, you know, a commander would hear, oh, that guy's a watchmaker. And, and at one point, this guy had 12 watches he was working on to repair. And, you know, they had, they had some rest time for a day, and this guy's working on the watches, and suddenly the command was given, let's head out. And the guy said, I, I, can't, I can't head out. I got 12 watches to repair. No, you're heading out. You can't entangle yourself in that. You say, you're a soldier. You're a soldier. I, I called my friend this morning, Stu Weber, and some of you know of Stu. He's a pastor in Oregon. Uh, wrote the book, Tender Warrior. Uh, Stu served in the Special Forces in Vietnam. And uh, they're two hours behind. It's about 7.30. And I don't normally call guys that early, but I knew Stu had been up for probably three hours. So I called him, and he answered his cell phone. I said, Stu, sorry to call you so early, um, but I knew you were up. He goes, there's no problem. I'm in Virginia. I'm an hour ahead of you. And I said, oh, <laughs> well, good. I said, what are you doing out there? He said, I'm with uh, my buddy, General Boykin. We're, we're speaking together, and uh, uh, General Jerry Boykin, who uh, was the first man selected for Delta Force, back when Delta Force, they would deny its existence, then eventually became commander of Delta Force, and then eventually became uh, commander of all the special forces. Committed Christian man, wrote a great book called Never Surrender. So I'm calling Stu to talk about a conference. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm just here with General Boykin. I said, hey, do me a favor and tell, and I had the privilege of meeting uh, General Boykin when Stu and I were at a conference together several years ago. And, and anyway, we met. He and Stu are good friends. And uh, I said, hey, tell him for me, will you, how much I loved his book. What a great book. And uh, uh, I said, you know, I do this study on Wednesday night, and I've had a bunch of guys tell me how much they love his book. So pass that on. And he said, why don't you tell him? He's right here. I said, great. So we got on the phone. We talked for a few minutes. And I said, hey, I just wanted you to know I loved your book. And, you know, thanks for telling the story. He, General Boykin, you may remember him, about five, six, seven, eight years ago, he was actually speaking in Stu's church in Oregon. They had it on videotape. Somebody found out he was there, ordered a copy of the DVD, got it to CNN, they spliced it up, and as a result of that, they tried to run him out of the Pentagon because it was Christian faith. The FBI was investigating him. It was pretty brutal how they went after him. And uh, I, I said, thanks for, thanks for telling that story because uh, I said, you know, I think a lot of guys are going to be facing like, stuff like that in the days that are coming. And he said, Steve, they're not coming, they're here. And I said, well, isn't that the truth?
He said, we're right in the middle of it, Steve, aren't we? I said, we are. We are. We're living in an age just like Paul lived in. We're living in an age of increased persecution. It's not convenient to be a Christian. It's not popular to be a Christian. We're going to face some stuff. So a, a guy like uh, General Boykin stood for Christ. He's persecuted. You were in the fire service. I forgot your name, my friend. Ron. Ron. I remember reading about you in Focus on the Family magazine. Was it in Wisconsin? You just took a stand for Christ. And uh, I remember reading what they tried to do to you in that, in that state. And, yeah, and you stood for Christ. God bless you. See, it, it's happening all the time, guys. It's happening all the time. Uh, Mary, last night, said, you need to go on the Focus on the Family website and listen to a program that they did last week with a panel of medical doctors. She said it was unbelievable. I said, what was it about? She said, it's about the conscience clause. I said, really? Yeah, because there's one of the first things that happened in this new um, um, dispensation is that all of the laws that were written that would help people who had a problem with abortion because of their conscience and because of their religious belief, they were, they were exempt. But that, this is interesting because what I had read is that that was going to be changed. What the program about on Focus on the Family last week is that in essence it's already been changed. Of brilliant students who apply to med school and are asked one question, one question. They got all their SATs, they got all their grades, they got all this stuff. One question. If a woman asks you to do an abortion, would you do it? And if the answer is no, you're out. You're out. One question. So you got a young girl who goes to David Jeremiah's church in San Diego, who's Miss California, hands down favorite to win Miss USA. It's set up because a guy who's a gay activist asked the question, do you think it's all right for two homosexuals to marry? And she said, in my opinion, as I've been taught in my family and in my faith, the answer is no, marriage is just between a man and a woman. One question. One question. You're going to get one question. I'm going to get one question. It's just, it's just where we're going, guys. But what does Paul say? See, and listen, we shouldn't be shocked. We shouldn't be surprised because what does Paul say? He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You see, it's part of the package. We really haven't had to deal with it, but now it's coming our way. It's just coming our way. So what do you do? You do what General Boykin said. That's what you do. Mixed metaphor. You guys still with me? We're on number three. Athlete. Look at verse five. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete. Yeah, you know what? I, I, can't, I can't leave the previous one. I'll get to this one. I can't leave this. There's, there's too much here. I'll get to athlete in a minute. Soldiers suffer, don't they? Soldiers suffer. 
Paul says, suffer hardship with me. We have had such an easy life in this country. We have had so much prosperity. We have had so much given to us. We have had so much blessing. We have had so much favor. Children have, have had so much stuff. You know what's amazing to me is how many feminized young men we have in America. What's amazing to me is how many young men we have in America who are afraid of getting hurt. And when I say feminized, that's what I mean. They're afraid of getting hurt. I'll tell you what else I mean. Uh, they need the approval of the group. They need to be popular. They need to be liked. A soldier shouldn't need to be liked. Right? A soldier should not be afraid of getting hurt. That's what soldiers do. They get hurt. They get hurt. Soldiers don't need to be popular. They just are assigned to their post, they fulfill their orders, and they do what the commander tells them to do. But you see, we've gotten so soft in this country. I, I meet so many young guys, and, and I talk with young Christian women, and you know what the problem is? All these young Christian guys, not I, all, I'm exaggerating, many. Many young men, you know what they're afraid of? They're afraid to commit. Why this great fear of committing? Well, because it may not work out the way you want, and therefore you'll get, what? Hurt. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt no matter what you do, right? That's just life. You're going to get hurt. You're going to take your shots. But if, but if you live your life in terms of avoiding, avoiding hurt and letting fear... Cap See, that comes from a soft culture, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Paul suffered all the time. Flip over, if you would, 2 Corinthians 12. Aren't you glad you came tonight, guys? Isn't this uplifting? Well, you know, it ought to be uplifting. Doggone it. God's working his plan. God's, God's working the prophetic program. And God's got his men, and God's got his remnant, and Jesus is going to be glorified. And I'm going to tell you what. And as things get tougher and tougher, you know what? People are going to come to Christ. But they got to see the real thing. Okay. Look at 2 Corinthians 12. Actually, 11. Paul is defending his apostleship. If you wonder if Paul just suffered when he was in prison, look at verse 23. He's defending himself, and he says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of... Hey, if Paul, if, if, if the managing principle in Paul's life was a fear of getting hurt, he was in the wrong business, was he not? Do you see that phrase? Beaten times without number. He couldn't even count them. And we're afraid that someone might make fun of us at work for standing for Christ. What kind of wuss are you? If you're afraid that someone will put you down, or some of you say, I know single guys that have at work, you know, you, hey, you, you know, you, you go out with a girl, yeah, you know, you, you sleep with these, no, I don't sleep with them. 
You don't sleep with them. Are you gay? No, I'm not gay. You must be gay if you don't sleep with them. No, I'm not, I'm not gay. You must be gay. I'm not gay. You know I'm not gay. I'm just a Christian. I follow Christ. Laugh at them, scorn them. That's not easy. But compared to this, it's a hostess Twinkie compared to what this guy went through. Right? Beaten times without, no, uh, times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked a night and a day I've spent in the deep. Frequent journey. I read this a few weeks ago. Dangers from rivers, robbers, countrymen, dangers, Gentiles, city, dangers, wilderness, dangers on the sea, among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposure. Paul was used to. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. If you're looking for an easy ride, there's the door. If you're serious about Christ and following him. All right, now let's move to the athlete, okay? Back in 2 Timothy 2, verse 5, next metaphor. Now you got the athletes. Well, what's the deal with the athletes? Well, the athletes do something, and what the athletes do is that they train in order to win a prize. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules, unless he plays Major League Baseball. <laughs> so Babe Ruth's record stood for years and years and years and years until Hank Aaron shows up and had his unbelievable career. I still remember that night. I was in seminary. Well, we went over to that guy's house, and we're gathered around, and Aaron hit that thing. Boom. He couldn't believe it. He beat the babe. I mean, it took years. How many years was that? It was forever. And then, you know, some years go by, and all of a sudden, you got McGuire and this other guy. What's his name? Sosa. And they're both right, and they both do it. And then right behind them, you got three or four other guys. Well, how the heck do you explain that? They broke the rules. Well, there weren't no there weren't rules. Well, 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 yeah, there kind of were rules. Because those other guys didn't do that, you see. And then um, and then Bonds comes along. When, when Bonds broke that record, I was thinking of how Aaron must have felt. How would you have felt if you were Hank Aaron? And all those years. All those years of sacrifice, all those years of training, all those years of discipline, all those years, all those years. And then these guys come along who are juiced. And it, anyway, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. At least when a culture, until a culture loses its mind and loses its sense. You see, when a culture loses its sense, the rules go away, and that's part of our problem. But see, when things are the way they're supposed to be, there are rules, and you've got to compete according to the rules. What does that mean for us? It means that we live by the standards of the Word of God. We don't live the way we used to before we came to Christ. Ephesians says, let him who steals, steal no longer. You're a shoplifter before you come to Christ? Guess what? Christ will get you out of being a shoplifter because of the power of his Spirit in your life. Uh, you a wife beater before you come to Christ? Christ comes into your life, guess what? The sanctifying power of the Spirit 
is going to conform you to the image of Christ. And guess what? You're not. A few months ago, I don't know if Jeff Swan's here, but Jeff and I had dinner afterwards with a guy who was sitting right over here who was a pastor. We had a great time, and I found out this guy was the head of one of the Mexican gangs in Texas prison. And I mean, how this guy came to Christ was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, his life's been changed. Oh, and guess what? Uh, some of his former associates are not pleased. <laughs> and he still gets threats. And we walked out of that restaurant into the parking lot, and I was watching him, and I noticed how he was checking everything. He didn't say anything about it, never said a word about it. I just watched him. It wasn't uh, anything out of the norm. He was just, I was just, I just noticed him. After I heard his story, we're walking out, he's a little bit heavy, and I just watched him. He was looking. He was looking. You would too. One more metaphor. Verse 6. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. He doesn't say the farmer. He says the hardworking farmer. Uh, you know, there's some principles here. What, what he's saying to Timothy, when he's saying to Timothy, be strong, Timothy, uh, in the Lord. See, see, when a man is strong and a man is following Christ, there are certain principles that are at work in his life. When, when you're a soldier, a soldier is self-disciplined. A, a soldier has self-control. A, a soldier is obedient to his commanding officer. Uh, th there are traits of a soldier. And if life is hard and life is difficult and you're sleeping in mud and, and you're eating, you, you know, dog biscuits, you do what you got to do and you just keep going. You suffer hardship. See, sometimes it's, way, it's that way in the Christian life because we're at war. The, the athlete, what does the athlete do? He competes according to the rules. Hey, we're not under the law, but there are principles in God's word because he wants us to live as men who are apart. He wants us to live as men who are holy unto the Lord, so we live our lives differently than men that don't know Christ, and we live in obedience. Then you got the then you got the uh, the farmer, the hardworking farmer. Any of you guys ever grow up? Any of you guys grew up on a dairy farm? Anybody in here? You did. You grew up on a dairy farm. Yeah, you had kids. So did you get up? What time did you get up in the morning? You get up at four o'clock. How old were you? When, you were six years old, and you got up at four thirty. And, and, and the state authorities didn't come out and arrest your father for child abuse. No. Yeah, okay. But you were a hardworking young man because you were on a dairy farm. Yeah. And then, and then those cows had to be milked later, I understand. About what time? At four. So what time would you normally go to bed? You go to bed about 10 and then you'd be up at four. Yeah. I have a friend who has worked with Billy Graham for at least 35 years. He has represented Mr. Graham. His name is Larry Ross. And uh, some of you might know Larry. He lives here in town. And if you, anyone wants to interview Mr. Graham, they go through Larry Ross. And he represents a lot of guys in different ministries. And Larry and I were talking one day. And he virtually talks with Mr. Graham on the phone every day. And... Uh, Traveled with him for years and years. He said to me one time, he said, uh, 
we were talking about something. I was asking him about, you know, his background. He said, you know, Billy Graham is the most disciplined man I've ever met in my life. He has more self-discipline than any other man I've ever met. I said, really? You know that Billy Graham grew up on a dairy farm? From the time he was a little boy, like you, he had to get up every day at 4 o'clock. Oh, I want to sleep in today. You can't sleep. What happens if a dairy farmer sleeps in? Uh, it's not real good. Cows explode. <laughs> or as one guy said, you got cottage cheese everywhere. <laughs> oh, and then, you, well, to, you know, I'm going I'm to go play golf, you know, this afternoon. No, you don't play golf. You're a dairy farmer. You got to milk those cows five days a week. Seven days a week. See, that's what you call a hard-working farmer. You know, guys, there's a lot to be said for hard work. You know what Paul said? Paul said if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. That's what Paul said. I'm hearing a lot of different stuff these days. Now, if somebody has a legitimate need, what do we do? We're going to help them. But if you're an able-bodied man, you get your butt out of bed and you go to work. When I was in my first church, uh, we had a little bit of growth and I needed some help. And I hired a guy that I had known from seminary and he had had a, you know, great credentials from another ministry and all that. Good guy. I knew him in school a little bit. And uh, I noticed, uh, so he moved into town with his family and all that, you know, and I noticed he wouldn't come into the office until 11, 11.30 noon. And, you know, you want to cut the guy a little slack, but, the, you know, the guy wasn't showing up. So I sat down and talked with him. I said, hey, what's the deal? And I, I, I said, you know, we, we get started around here a lot earlier. And he said, oh, yeah, well, I, I don't like to come in until about 11 or 11.30 because I like to spend time with my kid. I said, what? He said, yeah, I, I just like quality time with my kids. I said, yeah, that's, that's what we do at night. That's what we do at night. He said, oh, no, I like to do it in the morning. I said, well, that's not, you know, we got hours around here, and, I, and we really didn't, we just figured you'd show up, we figured you'd be here. He goes, well, I just love the freedom that we have in ministry. That's what he said. And he was really offended when we fired him. Because what we, and this went on for, this went on for quite a while. But we had to have a conversation with guys. I said, hey, we got guys around here. You know, we got guys that commute to us. This is the Barry. We got guys that get up at 4.30 to commute to get to work by the time it's 7.30. You know, Hewlett Packard, we got guys at GE. We got guys that are... Uh, carpenters, we got, hey, everybody around here gets up early and goes to work. And see, when you're a leader, it doesn't fit for you to be showing up at 11 because you want quality time with your kid. Hey, everybody likes to hang around until 11 with their kids in the morning. But you're a leader. But see, he wasn't a leader. He had the degrees. He had the credentials. He was real good up front. He was a lot of fun to be around. And when we talked with him, he got offended 
And then, as I said, when we let him go, not only was he offended, he was shocked. You know what the problem was? He wasn't a hard worker. You know, there are bad apples in every, every profession. In your profession and in mine. You know, it's possible to be in the ministry. It's possible to be a pastor and be lazy. I'm going to tell you, they're out there. They're out there. Just like in your field, they're out there. Paul says to Timothy, hey, Timothy, I want you to be a hard worker. I want you to be self-controlled. I want you to play like an athlete who wins the prize according to the rules. I want you to be a soldier. I want this is tough stuff. And we get tired and we get weary and we get fatigued. But you know what? We keep going. I'll never forget in reading Jerry Boykin's book about when they got the first group of guys together for Delta Force. They'd never done it before. They called these different guys in and they said, we're doing something that is so secret that if you make the cut and you make the grade and you're on a mission and you get caught, we'll deny your existence. In fact, when Boykin and the other members of Delta Force became members, there is no record that they ever served or were serving in the United States military. And they took these guys through a course up in the mountains of North Carolina that was unbelievable, and you read it and you weep, and you just can't believe these guys are going through it. And they just absolutely took them to the edge. And when they were on, they were on the absolute verge of exhaustion, they gave them the final test. And they had to navigate their way 30-some miles with just a compass. They were cold. They were fatigued. They were exhausted to find this rendezvous point. And I remember reading Boykin's account of he was, he was exhausted beyond his strength. And the only thing that kept him going was they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Jesus, help me to take another step. Jesus, help me to follow you. Jesus. And he made it. He made, and he was the first one in. And by his own testimony, the only way he could make it was by the power of God. That's how men do it. It's not that we don't, it's not that we don't get tired. It's not that we don't get discouraged. It's not that we don't get We do. But there's the power of God. Our country desperately needs leaders, men. You know what? Let's be those leaders. Let's follow Christ. If nobody else follows him, let's follow him. And let's live to the glory of God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your greatness and your encouragement. These are not easy times. These are hard times. We pray that you will give the strength sufficient to the task, and you have promised to do that because you have said in your word, as your days, so will your strength be. We count on that. We trust in that. We pray these things in the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen.